Okay. I just want to see whether or not. Okay, cool. We're good. All right. Okay. And then I just need to. This is insurance. My phone is insurance. <laughs> I use my phone because I don't trust this. I, I genuinely do not trust this. Thing. <laughs> is it, it let you down before? Or is it just. It has. Oh, okay. <laughs> nah, then your trust is valid. And then it put me in positions that I just didn't want to be in where. You recorded like a 30 minute interview with someone and you have to tell them, oh, hey, um, so I can't put that out. <laughs> Can we do it again? <laughs> yeah, that's that's too much. All right, cool. Cool. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for uh, inviting me. <laughs> cool. So tell me more about yourself. Well, um, sure, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, I suppose, at heart. Um, I'm an Africanist, Afro-optimist, as I call myself. I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm, I'm someone's son, um, but I'm, I'm a son of the soil. So I'm a, I'm a huge, huge Afro-optimist and Afro-futurist. At the moment, I'm involved in three businesses. Um, one, effectively, is a technology business called Bridge Labs, where we build product, try to get the smartest people in the room to solve complex problems. Um, African team of engineers. And the second business is a, is a creative business called The House of Brave. And the third is a podcast called African Tech Roundup. Um, and those three things align my passion points, tech, telling great stories, and creativity. How did your background or upbringing shape your journey as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it was fundamental. I think if you, um, I suppose if I consider, I spent uh, a lot of my earlier years in different you know, parts of the world. Um, it made me increasingly attuned to adding value in different and new contexts very quickly. So we moved around quite a bit when I was younger. So it was always being, you know, the new new kid or the new family in the in the environment. And you know, what do you do? How do you make friends? You know, how do you suss out what's happening in the neighborhood? Um, and so that early upbringing gave me that resilience around uh, around change and being able to make a plan. Uh, it also gave me the ability to to identify across barriers. You know, so when you have to travel to places and you're constantly the stranger or the new person you become um, in tuned in being able to reach out to people and connect you know sometimes people who are very different from you sometimes people who don't understand what your story is or you know where, you, where you're from um, and so and so it's helped me kind of get closer to this notion I talk about called humanity and and making sure that you always come down to connecting to human beings and everything that you do um, and then the last thing I think it's it, it also broadened my horizons around creativity you know, people say often if you travel, you start to see the world very differently. And because that happened from an early age, I think it kind of inculcated um, the way I view most opportunities. And uh, and the way people see challenges, I see, you know, major things that we need to solve or opportunities. So I think those three things were, were, were really, I think for me, key things that came out of my upbringing. Um, come from a, you know African home, you know, parents that wanted me to be, and a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. I mean, they never they never put pressure on me, but they all you know they always <laughs> wanted to be that that person. Um, but fortunately, they they supported me in, in the stuff that I did choose to do. So I went I went my own route, and I took a little bit of a non conventional route to to my uh, <laughs> to my success and my journey. So so they they were quite supportive from that perspective. But come from a biggish family, and uh, and they also were critical in my upbringing and how I understand the world right now, and how I interpret it into everything that I do. Does um, so just with the businesses that you're involved in, mm. um, what's motivated you to work so much with a digital focus? I mean, you, you mentioned a tech business, but also mm. uh, a creative agency, which mm. I assume is, has a lot of um, digital or 
tech involved as well. Mm-hmm. Where does that focus come from? It comes from the reality of our of our context as Africa, you know. So, you know, we're at the we're at the dawn of the age of augmentation. You know, we're in the 21st century, effectively. Um, the global narrative around what 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 Africa is going to do next is is hot right now. Um, the world is looking at Africa and going, you know, we're either coming to get it from you or you're going to have to make a plan. Um, we've got an amazing um, ecosystem of young people that that that, have, that are globally wired but quite connected, relevant, uh, relevantly locally. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff that for me makes sense to focus on from a technology perspective. Because ultimately I think for us to really get the value of the future that we always speak about, um, there really will be very few other ways than through a technologi- technologically advanced future for Africa. Um, and when I talk about technologically advanced, I'm not talking necessarily about, you know, AI and, and sky drones and all that. I'm talking about just understanding how it is that basic technology solve problems. Um, and so my focus in technology has been to try and find ways to unlock value for what we call the digitally invisible, which is typically the long tail of most industries. You know, you'll get the you know the big 80%, the Rickett, Benkiza, Unilever, those monsters at the top, and then you've got the long tail of you know FMCG companies. So our ethos as, as Bridge Labs when we solve technology problems is to focus on the long tail. Um, we're trying to bring the creative component into being able to create messaging and brands that re- resonate with the long tail in the, in the agency. And then ultimately telling those stories through our podcast is being able to go to the world and you know and showcase what we do. So so I think that I think that the future of Africa relies on us being able to, to optimize how we how we view technology. I don't believe there's going to be any other way. I mean, you know, coupled with education, obviously, but you know, there's no real practical way I can see us, you know, assuming our position on the economic throne, assuming the narrative and owning it, et cetera, et cetera, without technology at the core. So that's what drives me, and that's why I focus my energy on trying to wrap everything I do in some level of technology. It's very interesting that you speak about a podcast because, mm. you know, I've, I've had a podcast for a while and I've had friends that I podcast, mm. um, but I've never had entrepreneurs have podcasts and speak about their products themselves. Mm. Do you see a benefit in that? Yes, I do. I mean, admittedly, we don't necessarily product push on, on Africa Tech Roundup, to be honest, um, but I do see the benefit at some point because... You know, the one thing we do very badly as Africans is uh, is blow our own horn sometimes. You yeah. Know? <laughs> we, we build amazing things and we hide it in the corner, you know? And we wait for someone to tell us how amazing it is to reinforce the fact that we believe it's awesome. But, but isn't that why we need agencies? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I suppose that's the role of the agency. But if, if, you, if you think about the cultural context of the reason why a country like America is what it is, is because those people have got no shame in telling you how amazing whatever they think is, uh, what, whatever they're doing is. And I think we can learn from that. I'm not saying we adopt the culture, but I think it's important to assume the view, like our West African brothers, that it's okay to to shout from the rooftops if you're doing something great. Um, now, the platform that we're trying to create through African Tech Roundup doesn't necessarily focus on our product, but it does create definitely an environment for us to be able to speak about what we do in a way that we don't have to shy away from it, but also a way that we can engage with other people that can critique us, um, that can big us up, that can pull us in different directions. Um, and so there's value. There really is value there. I don't think we've even started to unlock it correctly. Um, but the, that's, I suppose, because of our wiring as Africans, that you won't go and talk about your own things on your own platform. But, you know, having having heard you say it now, it's absolutely part of what we should be doing. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you were part of Facebook yeah. um, in Africa in the early days. Mm-hmm. Um 
how did that influence the work that you're doing now and how do you see um, young Africans and small businesses navigating digital to be able to better their business performance you know whether it's awareness from a awareness standpoint or conversion or sales standpoint do you think we could be doing better where do you think we are yeah I mean I as you said I was very fortunate and blessed to be involved um, as the founding client partner in Africa essentially setting up the sales team uh, for the for sub-Sahara Africa representing the continent which is also interesting on its own but my, my, my learnings and my uh, experience at Facebook were number one a, an amazing business and organization as far as the way they think about problem solving the way they prioritize intent around problem solving uh, and the way they rally resources to get things done that was something I'd never seen quite at that velocity and that scale um, without losing the clear vision of what needs to be done you know so, so from a learning perspective, I found it really refreshing to work within an organization that was completely sold out on the thing they woke up to do every single day. And everybody that joined the organization believed it. Now, I, I've worked in one other big organization before that, and I never really drank the Kool-Aid to the extent that I did at Facebook. But I bought into the mission around connecting the world. I bought into what they were trying to do. And working for them just really helped me to figure out how you connect that to commercial value. Um, one of the things I started doing a lot when I was at Facebook is I started spending a lot of time with small, medium businesses. I started trying to understand the value equation around these new technology platforms and the things that they say they solve and how that translates into, into the market. Um, and, uh, and we found, like, when I say we, you know, in my own personal research, I found that small businesses were actually right at the beginning of being able to unlock the real value of platforms like Facebook and Google and the rest of it. Because there was two major stumbling blocks. The first was the perceived value or the perceived cost access value. So small businesses don't understand per se that you know Facebook is not a free platform, but it's, an, it's a cost-effective platform. Um, the second thing is the learning and the knowledge to be able to get you to start creating ads, interacting with, um, uh, with your campaigns, understanding what to optimize, etc., etc. That's a whole different school of thought for your average small business or young person. Um, and so what I found is that there was a gap between the value that they could access and where they were accessing it because of knowledge and because of technology. Now that begged the question around Facebook being a self-service platform, um, which is what essentially our small medium business strategy was all about. And that really sparked my curiosity around creating a product to help bridge that gap because I believe that uh, self-service in the context of, uh, of the US or Europe was very different to self-service in Africa or emerging markets. Um, and so that, that sparked kind of the first thought around one of the products that we built called Minute, which is effectively uh, a, a conversational interface that allows small businesses to create ads uh, in any language in under two minutes on Facebook um, and any other uh, social media platform. Um, and so for us, it was just trying to bring the value equation a lot closer for small businesses and entrepreneurs, but do so in a way that was uh, as, hum as human as possible, right? So you, you know, without going to try and teach people a whole new thing to do, a whole new way of interacting, we found that the best way to do that was through conversational interfaces uh, and with a natural language processing engine at the back, we're able to come up with really clever ways to drive value. And that relationship continues in terms of the conversation you have with, with Minute. So, so I really think that you know, that is our attempt at, at, at trying to address what, you, what, you, what you're speaking about, um, address the issue around do small businesses get value out of Facebook, um, not to the extent that they should, um, and the gap is around education and the perception of, 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 of cost or, or value. Um, but slowly but surely, I think, you know, if you look at the numbers, I think the last time I looked, there's about a 45, 50% rate of growth 
within small businesses and the adoption on, on, on Facebook. I don't know about the other platforms. So the rate of growth and the appetite is there. I just think the technology solutions aren't quite there yet. Um, and we hang our hats. When I say we, when we're at Facebook, we hang our hats on being self-service. And that's not always the case in, in Africa. So, I mean, you, you have a lot to teach, obviously. <laughs> if anyone hasn't heard that already. <laughs> and I think you've, you've, you've sort of taken what you've learned, yeah. right? And just what you have to say, the way you see the world. And you've put it into a podcast. But you've also put it into a book, right? Yeah. So Ladders and Trampolines. Um, just talk about the journey of writing that book, but also what was the intent and impact that you wanted it to have? Yeah, I think, um, firstly, thank you. I, I, my wife doesn't think I've got a lot to teach. She's always telling me <laughs> I talk too much. So it's good to, <laughs> it's good to hear that from, from you, my man. Um, so Ladders and Trampolines was an itch you know that I had to scratch it was you know I spent a lot of time when I was at Facebook traveling around the world traveling within Africa um, and I started to feel a little bit disingenuous about the whole thing around African narrative and you know write our own story and this that, and the next thing and I just felt like you know if if I am to get up on stages or public forum and talk about stuff and speak about you know lines don't learn to write hunters will tell their stories you know those kind of wine liners that we drop if I don't have something to evidence the fact that I really believe that it would have been a problem, number one. Number two, um, I have two beautiful children. My son is six and my daughter's two. Um, and I remember growing up, I, one thing I really felt was a gap for me was the inability to connect into my father's world. And, and not, not his world per se, what, what constituted him as a man. Like, he had gone through stuff. He had experienced lots of stuff. He's been, he was very similar to me in terms of his curiosity across different disciplines. But I actually had very little knowledge of, of how... He did what he did and how he got to where he got to and so i felt that that was a bit of a, a blind spot for me um and unfortunately uh, my father uh, is alive and, and was alive at the time and i think because of the cultural barrier of, of african relationships let alone african intergenerational relationships it's sometimes not always easy to go and engage you know in particular your, your, your father on those issues because you know as an african man you always show strength you don't show weakness you know da, 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 da. so i just kind of got to a point where i realized wow you know I run the risk of, of being like that to my children, you know. Psychologically, without even thinking about it, you know, you think you're super progressive, you think you're different. It's often easy to become exactly, the, you know, that, that, that view because that's what you know. So I wanted to figure out a way to capture my experiences and my thoughts and classify them so that I could give that or leave that to my kids as a reference point. Um, having that as a reference point would obviously naturally speak to the fact that I'd tell a bit of my story. And I went through a long process of, you know, do I write a biography, but I'm so young? Do I write an academic book, but it's not going to really connect with who I am? So there's a lot of back and forth around how this book should be structured. And I effectively just started stringing together a collection of stories that I'd been writing and collecting over the years. Um, and I started putting them together under a cohesive, one cohesive thought, which is called Landers and Trampolines, um, that effectively speaks about decisions that young people will make. You'll either have a ladder decision, which will be, you know, step by step, incrementally, or you'll have a trampoline decision, which is put everything on the line and leap of faith. And with the same effort, you get exponential results. And so I try and juxtapose that with my journey and where I believe I've made you know, ladder decisions versus trampoline decisions. And uh, the journey from a marketing perspective, how I built my first business, you know, to having gone into corporate, etc., etc. So, so, I mean, I think for me, that's what I was trying to do. And just, you know, effectively be able to have a, 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 a physical thing I can leave my children, um, you know, I think, you know, forget everybody else being able to read what, I, what I've what i experienced or gone through. I think my, my children having the view of me 
um, is really important uh, and a view maybe that I may not be able to give them you know so so that was that was that was the itch that I had to scratch to be quite honest um, just on, on what you were saying um, do you think entrepreneurs need to be taking a ladder approach to entrepreneurship or a more trampoline approach I think there's uh, so your hardcore entrepreneurs um, will take a huge trampoline in the beginning and then they'll ladder through a particular phase of their business. So I think the, the, the theory around a ladder and a trampoline is to be able to contextualize where you're at and what you're trying to achieve. The problem with entrepreneurs is that sometimes they want to achieve amazing results, but they're only doing incremental things. And there's a disconnect there between the output and the input. If you want to revolutionize the world, you have to take a trampoline standpoint or you have to take a trampoline decision. And that's where the exponential is going to come from. So, so I think in most cases, it just depends at which point you are in your, in your journey. But if you're an entrepreneur or a person who, who you know, thinks they're an entrepreneur, your first step is going to be a, a, a huge trampoline because you have to take a leap of faith. Um, through your product development, through your initial, you know, kind of sitting at home trying to figure out what you're going to do with yourself, it's about the small wins. It's about making sure that every day you are doing something. And that's a, you know, very much a trampoline way of thinking. But the overall picture around adding value is to try and make sure that you're always aiming for the, for the trampolines um, and minimizing the ladders. Cool. Um, so I was on your website um, and there was an article just at the top that said... Um, how to recession-proof your business, which is something that I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs are, yeah. are really, really thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, South Africa's economy is in a bad place. Yeah. You know, unemployment is at its highest. And, you know, business performance in recessions is something that everyone should be obsessing over mm. and should be worried about. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to talk to you about that. It's just, what do you think entrepreneurs need to be doing right now to prepare themselves for where the economy is right now mm. and where it will be most likely for the next five years. Yeah, I think entrepreneurs, this is the hardest time they need to be selling, man. You know, because I think that, if I remember correctly, um, that particular article, the premise was in recessions, um, the natural behavior of any organization is to pull back for a lot of things. It's a knee-jerk reaction. It's not necessarily the right reaction, but it's knee-jerk. So they cut back. They try and find ways to, to kind of optimize or to reduce or to... That's, that's the knee-jerk reaction of 9 out of 10 corporates. Now, what happens when they cut down and when they look to reduce on the, when they try and find efficiencies is they start to consider other alternatives that they may not have considered in the beginning, right? And that's typically where new businesses, innovation, entrepreneurs thrive because you will now have a unique economic opportunity to pitch your business to someone who's potentially really desperate for a solution. Um, so recession-proofing your business effectively is about don't, don't follow the narrative, the mainstream narrative around cut back, um, uh, slow down. It, this is the time when you need to be pushing hard and being more aggressive. I think the sales process as far as being able to identify you know, potential targets that you can speak to is really important. So spend some time understanding the businesses most impacted by your product or service and then craft your, your narrative to be able to speak to that. But most importantly, come up with flexible models around value creation. So whether it is a, a costing model or a shared revenue or whatever it is, I think big organizations are most receptive to alternative ways to get around the perception of a reception or, uh, recession on their business. So I think it's an exciting time for businesses that look at it, or small businesses that look at it that way. Um, and I don't think they should follow the narrative of, you know, cut down and, and move back and, you know, pretty much don't do. Uh, they should be more aggressive during a recession. Um, a point on the article is uh, survival of the numblest. Yeah, yeah. 
which I took to mean lean. <laughs> Are you yeah. a fan of the lean approach to starting a business and running a business effectively? Yeah, I think lean works up up, up until a point, um, and then it and then the responsibility for lean has to sit. Hope, so, so lean, if you get it right in the beginning, can, becomes your organizational methodology. At some point, because that's the way you do business, it'll also become order of business. Um, but at that point, it needs to become an accountability of someone in the organization to continue to make sure that it, you get the efficiencies. So yes, I'm a fan of it. I think th- I'm a fan of the thinking because the application of it sometimes can differ depending which industry you're in. Um, but the principle around getting things done quickly, um, getting things done uh, or producing something at the end of every time you do something, I think it's something that I personally uh, ascribe to. I mean, I don't believe in selling theories. You know, that's a mistake we make as early, early entrepreneurs is that you go and you, you, know, you over-pitch with PowerPoint presentations. Um, but the lean methodology says get to a product output quickly and iterate on that. So I believe in it. I really do. I also think it reduces your risk as an entrepreneur if you, if you follow that methodology. Yeah. Um, Finally, I think this is something I always want to ask entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs that want to share um, whether it's their journey or their learnings is um, what is one thing you teach someone about entrepreneurship that you have learned in your entrepreneurial journey? Sure. And I'm sorry, like I know one thing, <laughs> one thing is a lot because you've been through a lot and there's a corporate journey where the learnings are different. There's yeah. the startup journey where the learnings are different. Yeah, yeah. Startup journey within a tech business. Startup journey within an agency sort of creative business. Yeah. But what is one common thread amongst it that has sort of put you in the position to win yeah. and helps you every day understand why you're doing this? And, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think the, if there's the one thing, one thing, one thing... Um, it's based on Simon Sinek's start with why. You know, the one thing that has... And sometimes the schizophrenic things that I appeared to be doing, for me, answered the question why, you know? Even when we onboard people into Bridge Labs, there's a process where everybody has, has to articulate why they're there. You know, if you don't get that right in the beginning, trying to match the what and the how becomes a problem. So whether I was in a corporate context, whether I was trying to start a business, or whether I was working for a big global tech company kept on asking I always ask myself why am I here and why kept me honest to not only my own personal alignment but it kept me honest to the value equation of that particular context um, if you can ask yourself why and you can link that to the value you are creating and getting it makes it that much easier to get up every day it makes it that much easier to do what you need to do so so the one piece of advice I would give or the one thing I would say is spend a lot of time thinking about why you know um, and, 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 and there's no, fortunately, there's no right answer to that question. Um, but if you can articulate that for yourself, I think it's got a really powerful galvanizing effect on everything that you do. Um, and then things may not make sense right in the beginning, but ultimately they will add up. I was speaking to one of my, uh, one of my nephews, he's studying in UCT, he's 22 years old, and you know, he's going through a 22-year-old, he's like, why am I here? What do I need to do? Um, you know, am, I, am, I, am I behind? Am I heard? What, like, he's trying to figure out his life, you know? And I sat with him and I said, dude, you know, just, you know, number one, calm down. You know, young people these days put a lot of pressure on themselves. Number one, chill out. You know, you like get your degree. Start, you know, make, keep the main thing the main thing for now, right? But I then said to him, you know, I asked the question that a lot of people ask when they're trying to figure out the why is that, you know, if you weren't getting paid and you could do something every day for the rest of your life, what would that thing be? And as soon as he articulated that, I then said to him, then even where you're at, create as many contexts where you can do that thing as much as possible. 
because you'll soon figure out whether that is a true part of you or it's just a thing that you're feeling right now and iterate on those kind of things keep asking yourself that and if you do that you know you ultimately go through a lot of stuff and i think that's the best methodology for young people in africa especially go through a lot of stuff like i like people who come across as schizophrenia they're doing a lot when they're young um because it helps you to filter down and that that then helps you to understand and articulate your own why so so for me that would be the one common thread um be clear about your why uh, and then the how and the what will kind of reveal themselves I think that's the perfect way to end. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much man. Appreciate uh, appreciate the discussion. It was a great chatting man. Cool. Thank you. All right. Dope. Cool my guy. All, All right. right. Is that good? That's perfect.